Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you. I hope you're glad to be here. Today we're starting a new series. We're going to journey through the book of Philippians um, over the next several few weeks, months. We'll just see how long it takes, won't we? If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can go ahead and open up to Philippians. If you have your phone with you, you can turn there. If you don't have either of those, I know you have your phone, but if you don't, all the verses will be up here. You can follow along. Uh, Philippians is a, we're going to jump into the background real quick so we can understand where we're going. You see, Philippians, the book was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church he planted about 10 years before this letter. And what's pretty cool about this church in particular is we actually see the origin story. We see the, the birth of this church, how it all works out in Acts chapter 16. I'll give you a summary. Here it goes. Paul was traveling around doing his, we don't need that. Oh, we're not there yet. Yeah, okay. Paul was traveling around doing his missionary journey thing. He was preaching in Asia, but, uh, excuse me, he wanted to preach in Asia, but God closed those doors and directed him to Macedonia through a dream. So Paul went, landed in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And now usually, remember, when Paul showed up at these places to preach, he would go to the synagogue. And the synagogue is the places where the Jews would gather to worship on the Sabbath. But in this particular place, there wasn't a synagogue, which means there was probably less than 10 Jewish males. Because in order to have a synagogue, you need at least 10 Jewish males. There wasn't one. Paul doesn't go there. So there was probably less than 10 Jewish people, uh, 10 Jewish males in the city, which means Less than 10 people who thought like him, who had a background with him, people he could just relate to. So because there was no formal place of worship, on the Sabbath, Paul and his team went outside the city, went outside the city gates and went to a river where some people were worshiping. Evidently, it was a place of prayer Paul heard about. We don't know exactly how he knew this, but there were people who believed in the Jewish God, Yahweh, there at the river worshiping. So Paul goes there and finds a group of women meeting and praying. And so we're told in particular in Acts 16 about three, three particular people who had influence over this church when Paul started it. Uh, that This really sets the foundation for this church. First, we're told about Lydia, right? She was at the riverbank when Paul went. She gave her life to Jesus Christ. Uh, she, uh, excuse me, her and her family, she was an entrepreneur. She sold um, purple cloth. Then after we see her, we see Paul traveling around the city and a Greek slave girl was harassing Paul. He was harassing Paul and his companions. Um, they were shouting and the owners made money from this Greek slave girl because she could tell fortunes, right? She was a fortune teller. So her owners would make a lot of money from her and her, her activities. But look what happens in Acts 16. It says, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now imagine everywhere you went tomorrow at work, when you went in a restaurant, someone was following you shouting, 
These men are here to tell you how to get saved. How would that work out for you? Right, you'd probably be a little annoyed. So was Paul. It says she kept doing this for many days and finally became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So once the spirit left, so did her magical powers. Her owners then realized that, look, she can't tell the future anymore. She was making us a lot of money. They'd set up these fortune teller booths. She can't do this stuff anymore. We're out of income. So they decided to get Paul and his buddies thrown into prison, but they had to make sure to beat them first. So there they are in jail. They're locked up in chains behind the doors, and they started worshiping the Lord, right? They started a worship service in jail, praising God, and God showed up. This is when an earthquake happened. The doors opened. The shackles were literally broken free. And so the guard thinking, uh, the guard woke up because of this earthquake, saw the shackles on the ground, saw the doors swung open, thought everybody had just escaped because wouldn't you? If an earthquake happened, the Lord did it, your shackles were free and the doors would open, you would take this as a sign from the Lord to just leave, wouldn't you? So the man drew out his sword to kill himself. The prison, the, the prison guard said, they're going to kill me anyways. I'm just going to take my own life. But Paul, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're still here. The jailer, of course, shocked that these men didn't leave with everything being wide open, trying to figure out, well, what's going on here? Ended up giving his life to Christ, submitting to the gospel, and him and his entire family were saved as well. So here's the beginnings of this church. An Asian woman and her family came to the Lord. A Greek slave girl, we don't really know what happened to her, but I, I like to think she joined the church. That's just what I think, okay? And then the Roman guard who was about to kill himself, but rather than doing that, turned his life over to Jesus Christ, found new hope and a new life. And, and then the founders of this church were just thrown into prison. That's kind of a shaky beginning, wouldn't it? Would you go to that church service? Kind of be kind of weird and awkward, wouldn't it? That's the beginning of this church that we're reading about 2,000 years later. You see, God can do some amazing things through small beginnings and unlikely people. And what's different about this letter than most of the other letters we have from the Apostle Paul is his tone. As one scholar puts it, this diverse group of believers seems to be Paul's favorite church. The tone of the letter is a thank you letter to friends. They've supported him financially. They've partnered with him in the gospel. They've rolled up their sleeves and joined him in this effort. In fact, he calls them his joy and crown. He loves these people. And though this church faces many difficulties, like every other church will, he talks about being joyful and joy-filled in this idea of joy 15 times in this gospel. Joy is such a common theme. And evidently, Paul experienced it and they experienced it together. And although joy, I mean, excuse me, joy is a major theme in this book, and what I find so amazing about joy being this theme, this thing he constantly comes back to, is because he starts off well, by talking about the news. And usually joy and the news, they don't go together very well, do they? 
In fact, isn't it true, and at least from my experience, people who focus on the news tend to be the grouchiest people you've ever met? If you're sitting here, it's okay. You can laugh at yourself. You're grouchy. It's because you watch too much news. Have you ever noticed the people who sit around watching CNN or Fox News Network or some of the meanest, angriest people you've ever met thinking the world's going to end every commercial break? Just to stay tuned to find out, okay, maybe it'll be okay. They think the world's ending. And real quick, while we're talking about the news, you know they do that on purpose, right? You know, like they really do this on purpose to get you worked up so you stay tuned They intentionally cause you anxiety, like that is their purpose, so you stay tuned. All major news networks do this. In fact, we were watching the Weather Channel before this just outrageous, massive blizzard we got here, right? And we we were watching it, because Jessica loves, she she loves weather. She should have been mirages. She just loves this stuff. And we were watching the Weather Channel, and they were down at, um, what, at Boardwalk? Not Boardwalk. um, um, Where are they at? Hard Rock is. What is it? Yeah, Broadway, sorry, they were at Broadway with the camera on the, the big guitar showing you ice. I said, you were literally getting people worked up about frozen water. We have it in our freezers. It's not that scary, folks. They were literally filming frozen water, telling you to watch out. Frozen water is coming. And I just said, are you serious? That's what we're doing? It'll be okay. You see, once they went to 24 hours news cycles, the only way to keep you tuned in is by stressing you out. And whether you know it or not, this news is influencing your decisions. Think about it. It's influencing, uh, excuse me, they're speaking into your life. They influence what you think about. They tell you how you should behave. They tell you what you should care about. They tell you what you should do, what you should ignore. In other words, did you know the news is trying to disciple you? Trying to teach you how to behave, how to think, what to know is important, what to dwell on. And I don't know anyone who experiences joy from watching the news. And that's because they're focused on the wrong news. You see, Paul focuses on and tells them to focus on the good news. You know, that's literally what the word gospel means, right? The word gospel literally means good news. He wants them and he wants us to prioritize this good news, this other type of news, this message that can change your life. You see, when the good news of King Jesus directs your life, affects your life, when it encompasses you, it will change your life. You see, what you believe and what, you, what influences you to, to put your time and energy and effort, the gospel can shape that. You see, God really does want to shape your life around the news. But it's the good news. Not just that garbage on TV, right? Not that stuff, but the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to see Three areas the gospel shapes this church. Three areas that when Paul writes them back and wants to talk to his friends, three areas that he shows that the gospel has changed them and the gospel will continue to change them and wants to remind them, hey, don't forget about these things. Don't forget about the good news. And here's where we're going today, just to give you a heads up, that the gospel can shape your identity, the gospel can shape your relationships, and the gospel can shape your prayer life.
So first up, we're going to see that the gospel must shape your identity. And before we get there, let me ask you this question. If I were to ask you, who are you, how would you respond? Would you tell me about your career or your formal, former career? Would you tell me about your family and your family ties to the community? If I were to say, who are you, would you start rattling off your education and experience or what school you went to? Would you tell me about all the sports you played or did play? Some of you peaked in high school, we know. Would you tell me about that and how awesome and amazing these sports are? How would you describe you? Some of us are still searching for that, right? The, the world is still confused about this. People try to find their identity in all sorts of things, their careers, their education, their political parties now. It really blows my mind. Like, that's who we think we are. Their dress, their sexuality, sports. I mean, all of these things try to consume our identity. Every human is trying to answer the question, who am I? Right up front, we see Paul remind us of our identity and his identity found in Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, so both of them wrote this. Servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul and Timothy introduced themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. And because of our history with slavery, they translate this word into servants, but it really weakens the force of what they're saying. You see, a servant to us is something you watched on Downtown Abbey, right? How many of y'all watched that show? I tried. I just didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I just didn't, didn't get what was happening. When we think of servants, that's what we think of. Someone who has a choice, who can go and who can change different places they serve and, and be like this butler. But they don't call themselves a butler. They're calling themselves a slave. Someone who is owned by another person. Another person. You see, Paul teaches us that Christ purchased us on the cross. Therefore, we are owned by him. And the force of this shouldn't be missed because the common word for a slave owner back then, what they called someone who owned a slave, was Lord. He is our Lord, our master, our owner. You see, Paul lived with this singular focus because he understood his identity in Jesus Christ. He knew that he was not his own, but a slave of God. And we need to put our understanding of slavery aside and just understand that um, there's no better way to understand who we are in light of God being the creator and the owner of absolutely everything. If this entire world is his and he made it and he directed it and he purchased us, Paul says, therefore, we are owned by him. We are owned because he bought us with his blood. But never forget he's our father. We'll get to that in a minute. But look at he how, how he identifies the people of the church. He calls them God. Oh, go back. Okay, we'll look at verse 2. It says they are God's holy people. They are God's holy people. There it is. They are God's holy people. They are God's saints, those set apart in Christ Jesus. You see, when we see this idea of in Christ, we talked about that when we went through our Ephesian study. In Christ means we are 
um, inside of Christ, he owns us. We're a part of him. What is true of Christ then becomes true of us. When, we, when we're believers, we put our faith, we are then in Christ. And so what's true of him becomes true of us. And because he is holy, we therefore are considered saints because of Jesus Christ. And what you believe about yourself really does matter. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you holy and justified. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God considers you a saint. You are his beloved people. And granted, we all understand we're sinners. But once we are in Christ, we're no longer labeled this sinner. We're declared holy and we're declared a saint. And that's what you need to believe about yourself. What he declares about you, that you are a saint. You are a child of the most high God. And so when we understand that we are a saint and God is our father, it helps us peek into this understanding. You see, as a father, my kids can do all sorts of things I dislike and disapprove of. Y'all ever been there with your children? Yeah, they can do all sorts of things that you're not happy with. But regardless of what they do, they are my kids. And I love them. And when I see my kids, I don't look at all the wrong they've done. I don't look at all their mess ups. I rarely think about that. I think about who they can be. I think about how much I love them. I look at their potential. I look at their opportunities. I don't focus on the negative. Why? Because they're my children. And that's how God sees us. As his children, Christ defines us. Sure, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. But because of Christ, we are seen as his children. And the same is true with you when God sees you. He sees what you can become. He sees who you are in Christ because the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin. And some of you just need to declare and you, just remind, you need to remind yourself every day that you are a child of God. That you are loved. You've been purchased. He cares about you. He loves you. You need to stop living in it, all that stuff you used to do. All that stuff that weighs you down, all that guilt and that shame that likes to come and bombard you, you need to just put that to a side and declare, I'm a saint through Jesus Christ. Because if you are a believer, your identity is rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. We are surrounded then with his grace and his peace. We can live into that. You see, the gospel shapes our identity. The gospel changes our purpose and our identity. He declares that we're holy and that we're loved. And so who are you? You are a child of God. Whose are you? You are Jesus Christ. He is your owner. And he wants to bring you peace. And why this is so important is because understanding who you are drives then who you hang out with. We all look for community. We all look to define ourselves. We all want to build relationships with people. We can't help it. It's built into us. It's how God created us. I've argued myself out of this so often. thought, well, maybe people can just be loners. It's just not possible. As human beings, we crave other people. And that's exactly what we see in this church. We see that the gospel must shape your relationships. Look at what he says next. I'm going to read all three through eight so we can see how how he feels about this. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion and today of Christ Jesus. Next verse. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long, this relationship, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, going back to verse 3, when Paul says right here that I thank my God every time I remember, remember you, many scholars believe that the way that verse should actually read is I thank God every time you remember me. All right, we won't go into the reasons, you're just going to have to believe me. But Paul is first thankful that they remember him because they partner with him. They think about him. And he tells them, hey, I think about you too. I remember you. I've been praying for you. So not only do they just remember each other, but they've come together and partnered together. They've come and joined forces around what though? Because of your partnership in what? In the gospel. They've joined forces around the good news of Jesus Christ. They've literally rolled up their sleeves and put their checkbook where their mouth is to support Paul because the gospel was at the center of their relationships. You see, this word partnership is literally what we say fellowship, that idea of fellowship. And when we think of fellowship, we think of potlucks, don't we? Yeah, we say we're going to have fellowship, so bring your best meal. The word fellowship has this commercial overtone to it. It's this partnering. It's this sharing together. You see, this is the idea of us coming together and creating biblical community. Us coming together around the gospel and living our lives together. Because as we mentioned, all humans seek community. Absolutely all of us. We seek to bond with people. It's part of being human. And when you come together with others with a common mission, it brings you closer and draws that relationship deeper. Many of you, you've played sports, right? You built a bond over sports. Some of you, you've built bonds over work or those big projects. I know anybody who served in the military, they understand that bond that comes from serving in the military together. Like we all bond over these partnerships. And what's so amazing about the church, us here, is that Paul says we can bond over the gospel, what Jesus has done in our lives, what Jesus will do in our lives. We bond over grace. We bond over the mission to come together to make disciples. Just like any other partnership, we bond over our work and effort that we're doing to reach the world for Jesus Christ. See, what we have to understand is the gospel is enough to partner over. The gospel can bring us together. The gospel is what forms our church family. We're drawn together because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so you, me, we, we need biblical community. We need other brothers and sisters that we come to, that we're drawn to, that speak into our lives, that help us grow in our relationship of Jesus Christ. You need others to confess your sin to. We talked about this last week. You need others to celebrate life with. You need others that can just speak into what's going on. You need, I need, we need these deep relationships with other people. Let me say, well, I've never really had deep relationships with people because you've never had gospel relationships. 
You need not surface level. Y'all ever had surface level relationships? We just say, hi, how are you? Great. And you talk about the weather? Yeah, we don't have time for that. We need gospel level relationships. Hey, what's God doing in your life? How's God changing you? What's God, what's going on? The gospel can draw that out of you. And some of you today, you're lonely. You have these surface level friendships. You've never had deep, authentic community. I want you to know and be encouraged that you can bond with others over the gospel. That is what God is doing in your life and what he wants to continue to do. But you have to be intentional about building those. We need gospel-centered friendships. But not only that, while we're here, we might as well keep going and realize that the gospel can be at the center of all of our relationships. If the gospel shapes your marriage, you will have a successful, healthy, joy-filled marriage. Does that mean it's going to be easy? Absolutely not. At least from my experience, it's not. She's married to me. It can't be easy on her at all, right? But the gospel at the center of it, you can keep going. When the gospel's at the center of your parenting, you're going to be a successful parent. It doesn't mean your kids are going to do everything you've asked them to do. But they have to make their own personal choice. We can't make that for them. But when the gospel's at the center of your parenting, you've done what you can do. You've taught them about the Lord. You've showed them the ways of the Lord. You've showed them what that looks like, so you've done what you're supposed to do. When the gospel's at the center of your leadership or your company, you're going to be a great leader. If more people modeled themselves after Jesus Christ and their leadership, could you imagine what we could do in this world? The gospel can be at the center of all of our relationships. It must shape our identity. It must shape who we hang out with. And then in verse 4, we saw Paul talk about how he was praying for the church. Next, we're going to see that the gospel shapes your prayers. Look at what he says. Verse 9. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, when I read Paul's prayers, I am shocked and I'm reminded of how much I'm missing in my own prayer life. How about yours? Now, of course, God wants, to, wants us to cast all our cares and all our anxiety about him. That, that is a great thing. But Paul's prayers are shaped by the gospel about what it's going to do and what it can do in our lives. The gospel took priority over all the other prayers. You see, first he prays that their love may abound in knowledge and wisdom. In other words, he's praying that love will affect not just their head, but also their heart. That love of Jesus Christ will affect all areas, and then they will show that love. And that love will be um, shown in what they think and, and what they do. That God's love should penetrate our entire being and direct us. Remember, biblical love is sacrificial love. Then he says that that love, that the, uh, when it abounds in knowledge and wisdom, that it will guide them to better discernment, to moral discernment. You see, he wants them to understand what's the best thing to do. Here's what he says. He says, discern what is best. And I love Paul's decision-making process. In Ephesians, he tells us to ask what's the wise thing to do. Here he says, I hope you're able to know what's the best thing to do. 
What's the best thing I can do? Well, what, what do you mean best? What, best for what? What's the best thing I can do to the glory and praise of God? Y'all ever ask that? What's the best thing to do? Not just right. What's the wise? What's the best? So he asks for moral discernment in their life. And then, of course, with moral discernment, he wants them to be filled with righteous living. That's the third thing he prays for. See, it's one thing to know what to do. It's a completely different thing to actually carry it out. And he wants them to know what it's like to experience the fruit of righteousness. The fruit that comes from actually following God. And that's what some of us are missing. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what God wants us to do. But we haven't actually done it. And we're missing that blessing. We're missing that feeling of that, that righteousness that comes from Christ. We're, we're missing that whole experience. Because we're not living into what we know we should be doing. You see, Paul teaches us to examine our prayer life. To remember what's truly important. Think about it this way. If you or your friends or your family or your kids, if they were to get everything you prayed for, would their life look like a life shaped by the gospel or a life shaped by the American dream? Would their life look like Jesus or would their life look like I don't want to name anybody here. I would have gotten in trouble before the first thing came to my mind. But what are you praying that your kids or your family is shaped into? Are you allowing the gospel to be the center of your prayer life? Perhaps it reminds us what is actually important to us and how the gospel can take priority, even in our prayers, that it can continue to work in our lives. You see, this is just the introduction. This is just the opening words from Paul to his friends. And I hope you see, or at least challenged, by the priority of the gospel in Paul's life. The priority that he puts on the gospel in this life of the church. Because you and I, we are to be, pay attention if you've zoned out, come back. We are to be good news people. Good news. Would people describe you as a good news or negative news person? Do you and are you shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ? Because it can shape us, it can direct us, it can teach us. Because the gospel is power, powerful folks. The gospel, the God, the creator of all is reconciling men and women to himself. He then gives us purpose and meaning in a fulfilled life. He sent his redeemer, his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us broken, sinful people. I mean, the message is we were lost, but he came to find us. And the cost was the cross. He came to give us eternal life. He came to give us an overflowing purpose, a fulfilled, satisfying life, a friend-filled life, a, love that, uh, excuse me, a life that can experience his love and his grace and his mercy. And every single one of you are looking for purpose, friends, and community. And the gospel satisfies that. The gospel brings all that together. You see, the gospel is the answer to every human need. The good news of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, we are cut off. We have no hope in this world or next. And when we have no hope, you know what we'll do? We'll sit tuned in to CNN and Fox News and let them just stress us out, won't we? 
thinking it's all going to be over soon, thinking the gospel has no power and God isn't in control and can't do anything about it. But when you allow the gospel to direct your path, read your Bible before you watch the news is what I'm trying to say. Allow this to affect it and go, oh, God's got this. Folks, think about world history. God's got this. He always has. He always will. He's got this. The good news is who we're to be, good news people. So have you put your hope and trust in the gospel? I know we've been through a lot the past three years, but folks, are you putting your hope and trust in the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ. Is that where your hope is? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't made that decision, if you haven't given Jesus your life, if he isn't your Lord and Savior, you're going, no, I don't know what that means or I'm not there yet. Listen, I'd love to spend as much time after the service or perhaps this week talking to you more about who Jesus is and how that message really is good news. But for those of you who've given your life to Jesus Christ, we're going to have this time of, of, of worship in a minute. We're going to sing this song. And what I ask you to think about, what I ask you to seriously pray about is would other people describe you as a good news person? Has the gospel really been activated in your life? Does it really compel what you do, what you think about, who you hang out with, who you think you are, and how you pray? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. We thank you so much for your love and how you shape our identity. We know that through Jesus Christ we are declared your children and we are saints. Father, I pray that we all grow in our love and knowledge and wisdom. I ask that your love penetrates our hearts and our minds. That we allow your grace and mercy to radically change us and be filled and led by your grace. Father, help us love the way you love. Help us see people the way you see people. Help us put aside our flesh and be patient, joyful, loving, and kind to all those we encounter. Father, I ask that you help us discern what's the best thing for us to do for your glory. Father, help us understand the best way to go about life. Help us See past what's right or wrong and help us make wise choices to be able to discern all that's going on through your gospel. Father, I pray that we're filled with your fruit of righteous living. We ask that you continue to change us and purge those sinful things in our lives. Lord, those of us who are living in sinful ways and those things that you've pressed upon us now, Lord, I pray that we just repent and we give them up for you. And we know your grace will abound in our lives. We ask you for your holiness to continue to work through us and in us. Father, we pray that the gospel takes priority in our lives. We declare this morning that we are good news people. That we are saved and we are secured by our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.